from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews has spent nine and one half chapters reminding these saved Jewish brethren of how much better it is to live under grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ than it was to live under the law. Now remember, these were believers who were being persecuted. And the reason they were being persecuted is because they had followed Jesus. In fact, if you look down to verses 32 through 34 here, they suffered great afflictions, it says. They were called a gazing stock. They had their property seized. They just had many, many things done to them because they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, some were turning their backs on Jesus and saying, we'll go back under the law. And the writer of Hebrews is showing them that it is so much better to be following Jesus than to be under the law. In fact, he reminds them and reminds us of the advantages that we have in following the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 19 and 20. First of all, he says in verse 19 that we can have boldness to enter the holiest place. That means coming into God's presence. He said, look at it. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ. Now, in the Jewish mind, the holiest would make them think of the holy of holies. And if you remember how the tabernacle and how the temple were built, there was the holy place, but between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was a thick curtain. Not every Jew could go into the holy of holies. Not every Jew could go into the presence of God. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And he could only go in there once a year. And when he went in, he had to go in with blood. He was going in to make atonement for the sins of the people. And here's what he says. He says, in Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of his blood, we can come boldly into the presence of God. In fact, Go back to chapter 4, and as I taught the class last week, I said so much of chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 depend on what is said at the end of chapter 4, that we have a high priest now who is named Jesus. We know he is our high priest. And it says, therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, he said boldly, not arrogantly. There's a difference between the two. Boldly means that we can come with whatever petition we need to make before God, but we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. And what he says is, Jesus opened the way through the veil. Now again, the veil was that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And if you remember, I believe it's in the book of Matthew, it tells us when Jesus bowed his head, said, it is finished, and dismissed his spirit from his body. Darkness came upon the earth, but it also says the veil of the temple was torn from the top down. Now that's evidence that man didn't do it. That's evidence that God did it. Amen. 
God tore the veil of the temple and he opened up this new and living way to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the law never saved anybody. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 verse 24, one of my favorites in relation to the law, says that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be saved through faith. So when these Jews were under the law, the law was just pointing at Jesus, saying you need to trust Jesus, you need to trust Jesus, you need to trust Jesus. And so it was to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the scripture says in the book of Colossians that the sacrifice of Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross because the law had sat there and condemned and condemned and condemned because nobody could keep the law, not all of it. And if you messed up on one part of the law, you were guilty of breaking the whole law. And so the handwriting of ordinances, the law was against us. And Jesus nailed it to the cross. Now the scripture tells us that Jesus today serves as our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Over in the 110th Psalm, the fourth verse, God said, I will make thee a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now if you don't know about Melchizedek, you need to read about Melchizedek and study about him. He had no lineage in the priesthood, so he didn't have any claim to, in fact, Melchizedek was in the day of Abraham. Melchizedek was not a priest or a high priest under the Mosaic law. He was part of the Mosaic law. He had no ancestor in the priesthood. No ancestor followed him in the priesthood, but he was a priest before God, the scripture says. In fact, Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had gained, the spoils that he had gained when he defeated the five kings that had taken the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot was one of them captive in that particular battle. But Jesus serves as our high priest under the order of Melchizedek. Now go back again to chapter 4 of Hebrews and it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That just says he's not unsympathetic. And aren't you glad we have a high priest who's not unsympathetic toward us? Amen. Now if you go back and look at the high priests of the days before Jesus, they were just human beings like you and I are. And yet they may have thought themselves something special because they were the high priest. And so they might be unsympathetic towards someone who is having a particular problem. But the scripture says we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who's not unsympathetic, but what? But was all points tempted like as we are. Now, if you go to the book of Matthew and you read about the temptation of Jesus, he was tempted in the only three ways that you and I are going to be tempted. He was tempted in the three ways that Eve was tempted. He was tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I don't have time to get into all of that, but we'll get into that one day. But Jesus has endured the same temptation, the same testing that you and I endure every day. He knows what we're going through. And therefore, he is not unsympathetic. Then he says, verse 14 is the verse that I meant to start with, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, let us hold fast our profession because Jesus is our high priest because he knows what we're going through. He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He said, because of that, we need to hold fast our profession. We're going to talk about that in a moment because the scripture says we have, you and I right now have access to God that an Old Testament Jew didn't have through the high priest. Amen. 
He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. We can come into the very presence of God. And the scripture says there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So we can come to God today through Jesus. Now, these verses 19 and 20 are wonderful, wonderful, and 21 are wonderful, wonderful verses. Jesus has opened the way by his sacrifice on the cross. It is a new and living way, and we can come into the presence of God. Now, because of that, okay, the writer of Hebrews tells us some things, and he phrases it in three let us phrases. I told the Sunday school class, I heard of one preacher one time who preached a message on these verses, and he named it three heads of lettuce. Well, that's not what this is named, okay? But three phrases that say, let us. And look, first of all, at verse 22, let us draw near. What are you talking about? Let's draw near to God. Since God has opened the way, okay, since the veil has been torn, since Jesus made the way through the blood of his flesh, let us draw near. Somebody said it this way, since God has opened such a way of access and returned to him, it would be the greatest ingratitude and contempt of him and Christ to still live at a distance from him. But what's sad is many of God's people, many people who profess Christ today, want to live at a distance from God. See how far I can get away from God before he chastens me or zaps me and tries to bring me back to him. But the word of God says we need to draw near. We need to get as close to God and live as close to God as we can live today. And he tells us in what ways. Look at what it says. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What did the high priest do with the blood that he took into the Holy of Holies? Sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Again, a picture of Christ's atonement, of Christ's sacrifice. You know what he's talking about when he talks about having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience? He's talking about our salvation. You cannot draw near to God unless you know Jesus Christ as Savior. There are a lot of people today who want to wear the name Christian, who want to go to some church, who have never repented toward God and put their faith in Jesus Christ. I will say to us again today, I know of a preacher that started preaching a lot on salvation. Some of his church members started getting saved, and so the deacons ran him off. I hope that doesn't happen here. <laughs> but if you've never repented toward God and put your faith in Christ, you need to be saved. That's it. It's not church membership. It's not baptism. It's not showing up every Sunday. It's not giving an offering. It's none of those things. It's not taking the Lord's Supper. It is faith in Christ alone. We enter God's presence. Look, how does it say it? By the blood of Jesus. Now let me tell you something about that word by. It's an interesting word. It's a word that is normally translated in. If we were to transliterate, just write over in English, the Greek word, we'd spell it E-N. Of course, we know in English we spell it I-N. So think of it that way. We enter God's presence in the blood of Jesus. That's where you'll enter. We sing that song, Are You Washed in the Blood? Well, see, you need to be in the blood if you're going to be saved, if you're going to come into the presence of God. Adrian Rogers, Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say when he would give an invitation or close out a service he, and he'd address the congregation, he'd say, you'll either leave here today under the blood or on top of it. You'll either walk on the blood of Christ or you'll be under the blood of Christ. And that's the only two ways to leave a worship service where the blood of Christ has been preached. So let me ask you this question this morning. Do you know without a doubt 
and of a certainty that you are saved. If you don't, read the book of 1 John. Come back tonight and hear some of it explained. Pray and ask God either to convict you that you need to be saved or to convince you that you are saved. We draw near to God in salvation and as God's children, we draw near to God in sanctification. I told the class last week, I said there's a lot of preachers that are afraid of that word sanctification. Some religious groups have taken it and caused it to mean something it doesn't mean. And so a lot of preachers don't want to talk about sanctification. But I don't mind talking about sanctification. Look at what he says, and our bodies washed with pure water. That is not talking about baptism. Baptism has no part in salvation. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a setting apart. It means to be set apart. Our spirits are set apart to God, how? By the blood. By the blood of Jesus. But the scripture says we're supposed to set our bodies apart to God also. We're to live for God. We're to be his servants and set apart to him. Before the high priest could serve at the altar, what was he supposed to do? Anybody know? Had to cleanse himself, okay? He had to take a bath, all right? <laughs> he had to wash. Listen to Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen miter shall he be uh, attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on before he ever put on the holy garments. He had to be bathed. He had to be washed. You come in the blood... And then we're supposed to sanctify our bodies, set our bodies, our lives apart to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 27, we are told in the Word of God what Jesus wants from His churches. Listen to verse 27. That, and, and we're going to go back and get verses 25 and 26 in a moment. But I want you to see what Jesus wants of his churches. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus wants from this church. That's what Jesus wants from every one of his churches. That we should be holy and without blemish, that we should be spotless. Well, how do you accomplish that? Look back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 26, that he might sanctify. There's our word sanctification again. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. How do we clean our lives up? The word of God. The washing of water by the word. Now, over in the book of James... We're going to tie all of these things together in just a moment, and then we're going to move on to the next lettuce. But in James chapter 1, and beginning in verse 22, listen to what God says through James. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. You say, what does that have to do with anything? 
Well, James gives us an example of a person, of a child of God, examining his life. That's what he's talking about. And he says, you know, sometimes you go look in the mirror and you don't really pay attention to the mirror. When I first get up in the morning, I don't want to look into a mirror. Later on in the day, I may look into it, but I may <laughs> turn away from it in a hurry. But he talks about two different individuals, and he's talking about looking into the Word of God. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But he's talking about two individuals who look into a mirror. One just sort of walks by, glances in the mirror, says everything's okay, and goes on his way. The other one stands before the mirror, and he says, hmm, I think I need to shave today. Oh, wait a minute, I've got a Sunday school class will understand this. I've got a black dot right here on the side of my nose I can't seem to get rid of. I was having that problem this morning. Well, I've got this, I've got that, you know, and so I need to wash my face. I need to shave. I need to comb my hair. What's this man doing? He's spending time in the mirror. He's spending time examining himself so that he can clean himself up and look like he ought to look. Well, look at verse 25 here. But whoso looketh into the perfect law, and this word looketh, by the way, the first look has the idea of glancing. This look has the idea of what I just said, just staring into it, spending time in front of it. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. What's this man doing? He's, again, he's looking into the mirror. But what is the perfect law of liberty? It's the word of God. How can I be blessed in my deed? Spend some time in the Word of God. Get into the Word of God. Examine yourself in the Word of God. Am I what God wants me to be? Am I living the way God wants me to live as a child of God? Now you said you're going to tie all of this up, preacher. Tie all of it up for us. James and Ephesians and all of that. Do you know, remember that the high priest is supposed to wash himself now. Where did he wash himself, by the way? At the laver. Okay. What was the laver? It was a wash basin. That's what it was. And that's where the high priest went to wash himself. Listen to Leviticus 16, verse 4. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water at the laver and shall put them on. Now, what was the laver made of? Anybody know? Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8. And he made the laver of brass and the foot of it of brass, listen to this, of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. What's a looking glass? It's a mirror. You know what they used for mirrors back then? They didn't have glass mirrors like we have, but it highly polished brass. It didn't always give a true image, but it gave an image. You could highly polish it. And the laver, the place where the priest was supposed to clean himself up, was made of a mirror. And the word of God is compared in the book of James to a mirror. How do I clean myself up? How am I to be sanctified? How am I what I am supposed to be? Get into the word of God. And then John chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. If you're not familiar with those verses, Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And listen to this conversation between Peter and Jesus. Peter in verse 8 says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Remember, Peter's this bold, sort of braggadocious fisherman. No, Lord, you, now you're, you're the Lord. You're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. 
Hey, Peter, if you're not washed, you don't have any part with me. How are we saved? We're washed in the blood, right? So Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And in verse 10, Jesus says, He that is washed needeth not save to wash or except to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. He was talking there about Judas Iscariot. Here's what he's saying. If you've had a bath, you don't need to immediately take another bath. Years ago, when I was growing up, we used to go camping. And whether it was good or not, it'd probably be condemned today. You know where we took our baths? In the lake. Go down the hill, you know, get in the water. We used ivory soap because it floated. Also because it's 99 and 44, 100% pure. I think that's what the ad said. But you take a bath in the lake. But to go back up to camp, what if you walked barefoot back up to camp? You got dirty feet. Okay? So you get to camp, you need to clean your feet. This is what Jesus is talking about. We've been bathed, folks. Thank you. We've been washed in the blood, all right? But we walk in this world every day and we get our feet dirty and we need our feet rinsed off from day to day. And the way to do that is by the Word of God. Get into the Word of God. In order to draw near to God, we need salvation, which is by the blood, and we need sanctification, which comes from the Word of God. Remember, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 59 that it is our sin that separates us from God, that God will not hear our prayers, so we need to be cleaned up. So he says, first of all, let us draw near. You want to draw near to God? I hope you do. Then he says, next in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Interestingly enough, the word profession here, it's the same word as in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, homologia, and what does it mean? It means acknowledgement. It means agreement. It has the idea of confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Faith here is the word that is often translated hope. So hold on to your hope. Hold fast to your hope. Back in chapter 7, verse 19, it's translated that way. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Okay? So there's that word being used to talk about our hope. We must hold fast the acknowledgement of the confidence of our hope. Colossians 1.5 says, It is the hope that is laid up in heaven for us. It is the hope, according to Colossians 1.23, it is the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which has been preached in all of the world. In Colossians 1.27, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In 1 Peter 1.3, God has gotten us, Christ has gotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, now remaineth faith, hope, and charity. These three, and the greatest of these is charity. We are to hold on to our hope. I think we're living in a day when a lot of people are getting hopeless. A lot of God's people are getting hopeless. I mean, just look around you. About nine o'clock this morning, we were over in the fellowship hall, there's Joni and me, <laughs> it's always us. And I said, you know, I remember the day when people were getting here at this time because they wanted to fellowship and because they were excited to, to come to church. And what has happened? We've lost some enthusiasm. I don't know if we've lost some hope, but we've lost some enthusiasm. That's not good. We've got people that have just dropped out because of this thing or that thing happening. And so 
they've lost their hope. They've lost their enthusiasm. We're to hold on to our hope. What is that hope? Number one is that we're forgiven in Jesus, okay? That's the first hope that we have. As a child of God, as one who was a lost sinner, I'm now saved and I have hope and I'm forgiven in Jesus that we are made acceptable to God in Jesus. It's in his blood, okay, that we are secure in Jesus. My sheep know my voice and I hear them. He said, my, he said I have you in my hand. My hand's in the Father's hand. We are secure in Jesus Christ. We sing a song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. All other ground is shifting sand. What are we to do with our confession of this hope of eternal forgiveness and security and eternal life in Jesus Christ? What does he say? Hold on to it. Hold it fast. It has the picture, I didn't put this up here for that reason, but it has a picture of just having a good, tight grip on your hope, all right? Not saying, oh, well, you know, maybe. No, listen, I don't know about you. I'm going to give you this. I'm a child of God, and I'm going to heaven when I die. Amen. And if Jesus comes back today or tomorrow or next week or, you know, before I die, I'm going with him. Amen. That is my hope, and that is a secure hope. It doesn't waver because it's not depending on me. It's not depending on this church. It is dependent upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Hold on to that hope. Never stop believing it. We know of a certainty. We know of a certainty that God saves forever and that a child of God cannot lose their salvation. But the scripture also teaches us that we are to hold fast and endure to the end. The church at Smyrna was the poor, rich church. They didn't have much. They didn't have a lot of people. But God said to them, Christ said to them, you're rich. And listen to what he said to them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord's instruction to this church that was being persecuted. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. A reward that we can have for faithfulness to God till it cost us our lives. And not necessarily is that talking about being killed, but until we say, you know, I've got this thing in my life and it's not God honoring and I can't serve God in it, I'm going to put it out of my life. Or I'm, I'm living this way and that doesn't honor God and so I'm going to stop that and I'm going to start living for God. I'm going to get into the Word of God. That's what it means about costing you your life. This enduring is an evidence of salvation. Revelation 2.11, he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. What's an overcomer? It's somebody who's trusted Christ, who lives for Christ, even in the most difficult of times. We're not talking about a child of God losing their salvation. Again, I said, we know that that's not going to happen. But you know what failure to endure indicates? That that person's salvation was never real. You say, preacher, how dare you judge somebody? I'm not. But listen to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Little children, it is the last time as you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, listen to this, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Why do some people quit 
serving God through one of his churches. One of the reasons is they never were saved. People will walk this aisle, they'll take the preacher by the hand and say, I've been saved. We can't look into hearts. If they give what we believe is a fair testimony of their salvation, we receive them, we baptize them, we put them on the church roll. And I believe there are a whole lot of saved people on church rolls in America today. The average church, I could talk about the average Baptist church, but just the average church today, about one-fourth of their total membership ever shows up on a given Sunday. Something's wrong, folks. And I believe part of that something is a lot of folks that profess to know Christ don't know Christ. They want to maybe turn over a new leaf. They maybe want to, because of some emotional experience in their life, wanted to suddenly start going to church. Maybe they made a promise to somebody that they'd start going to church. I don't know. But failure to endure, failure to endure is an indicator of something else that's going on. There are folks that have some strange ideas about salvation. You know what? Because my parents were saved, that means I'm saved. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Okay? You'll either be God's child or you won't be God's child. Because I go to church or am a member of a church, I'm saved. No. We've already talked about that. Church membership will not save you. And I'll say again, I believe there are going to be a lot of people that go to hell from the pews of Baptist churches. Because I have a head belief in God and in Jesus, I'm saved. No. James 2.19, the demons believe in God and tremble which is more than some people do when they believe in God, when they think about God. The demons believe in God and tremble, but they're demons. They're servants of Satan. For you, someone to say, well, I believe in God, they're not doing any more than a demon does. Okay? Because I have been baptized, I'm saved. If you weren't in the blood, under the blood, trusting the blood, when you were baptized, all you got was wet. But when you come to God for salvation, you have to come in real faith. And real faith means selling out to Jesus. There's a little acrostic, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust Him. I'm not trusting anything else but the Lord Jesus. Real faith means admitting, Lord, I can't, but you can. And you said you would and you will do it. Real faith means you come to Him totally bankrupt of self and pride. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy the poor in spirit. For that's who's going to make up the kingdom of heaven. Folks who have just come to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm bankrupt. I can't do anything. You're going to have to do it. And real faith never quits. It never lets go of hope. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying this. He's saying, hold on. Hold on to your faith. Even when the world starts to pressure you, hold on to your faith. Even when trials come because of your faith, hold on to your faith. I've seen Satan attack some folks, and you have too, folks. Came to know Christ as Savior, got into this church and wanted to serve God, and immediately they started having problems. That's Satan's attack to try to stop them. Trials coming. And even when difficulties come, and you sort of wonder, well, what's God up to here? <laughs> hold on to your faith. Trust God. Know the character and the nature of God. I posted this this past week. I don't know if you saw it or not. All I have seen teaches me to trust God for all that I have not seen. Because God's faithful. 
Do you believe God can and will keep his promises? Wow, it's silent. I'm going to ask that again in case y'all all went momentarily deaf or I did. And it's more likely that I did, right? right. Can you trust God to keep his promises? Amen. Do you believe that Jesus does and will intercede for you? Amen. Do you believe that Jesus can and will and does save forever? Amen. Then hold fast. Don't back up. Don't retreat. Don't give in. Don't give up. The proper response to Christ is to genuinely believe and to keep on believing. Years ago, I sort of like to watch game shows sometimes, and years ago there was a game show on, and one of the contestants had N guns across her shirt. N gun. N G U N S. What does that mean? Never give up, never surrender. All right? N guns. And then he says, let us consider one another. We've got to go quickly to get through this one, but we've got to get it. Let us consider one another. The idea of consider means to have attentive care, continuous care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in the area of encouraging them to good works and to loving one another. Now, here's what's interesting. He says, let us consider one another. And one another here talks about a mutual activity. You know what it's saying? Each one of us has the responsibility to encourage the other to love and good works without having to be directed or reminded by the pastor or someone else that, hey, this is my responsibility to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider them. Love and good works is supposed to be the goal of the Christian life. You realize that love without deeds is just an empty emotion. And deeds without love is just hypocritical action. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. Even if I give my body to be burned and I don't do it in love, it's just giving my body to be burned. If I give a great offering to God and I don't do it in love, it's just giving money. That's all it is. So love is the motive. And we're to live our life with love and good deeds, but the reality is we're far less likely to do it without having someone to encourage us to do it without having a brother or a sister in Christ to do it. Some would say, well, I don't need to go up to that church house. I am self-sufficient. Remember what God said. I know this is a different situation. He's talking about something different. Remember what God said about Adam. It's not good that the man should dwell alone. No man is an island. No person is an island. And God knew that from the very beginning. And he knows that. And that's why we have, I believe, one of the reasons we have the Lord's churches today. We need someone to continually remind us of what is expected. I heard of a husband who said his wife just kept after him, after him and after him to do something. And finally said, I'm not going to do it. It'll just prove that nagging works. You know. <laughs> well, we might need to be nagged sometimes. Constantly reminded, this is what God expects. The word provoke here is an interesting word. It means to sharpen. It means to incite. The Greek word means provocation or strong disagreement. You know what it is to provoke. And he says we are to provoke one another. We are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. We need to consider how to stimulate one another, how to sharpen one another, how to get each other moving in the right direction. Someone used this illustration. Some won't like it, but you know, 
You can use spurs on a horse. It's painful. But it'll get him moving, won't it? And sometimes maybe we just need to be spurred. Our brother, sister in Christ, and they're not faithfully serving the Lord. We just need to spur them along a little bit. We just need to incite them. We just need to provoke them and figure out how to do it. For all too long, we've considered, well, that's the pastor's job. Maybe that's the deacon's responsibility, Sunday school teacher's responsibility. No, it is our individual responsibility. Something, well, preacher, you're supposed to go see them and make them feel so bad they'll come back to church. No, it's our individual responsibility. In reality, it is the responsibility of each one. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, If a man, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, what? Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. How would you want to be treated if you got out of fellowship with God and quit coming to church? Would you want people to pray about you, think about you, love you, try to love you back into serving God? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Comfort yourselves together and edify one another. That means build each other up. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We exhort your brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. That literally means encourage the discouraged. Support the weak, be patient toward all men. So, now we get to verse 25. We quote this verse a lot. And we preachers always, you know, we want people to come to church. We'll quote Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and the writer of Hebrews intends for us to encourage one another. But you say, the question to ask might be, well, how would you do that? How could you do that if you're consistently skipping church? How can you encourage someone else if you're not here to encourage them? Amen. Remember, these believers are being persecuted because of their faithfulness to Christ. Because of that, it would be real easy to say, man, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go back under the law. I didn't sign up for this. But even in that time, the writer says, don't forsake the assembly. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Forsake means to leave behind. Let it remain over. Don't turn your back on the assembly or coming to church. And the writer is adamant that we should not do that in relation to this regular meeting that we have Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Church attendance is not something to disregard. Amen. Church attendance is not something to ignore. Church attendance is not something to let slip away. You're not here just to hear, I hope you're not here to hear Brother Jim. I hope you're here to hear message from the Word of God. That's first and foremost. Worshiping God is, I guess that ought to be, I don't know how to rank those, which should be first right there. But then also in that category is you're here to encourage one another. There's a reason, I don't know what we did with it. There's a reason on the back of your bulletin today, there are 10 ways, 10 reasons you ought to be in the church of your membership when it meets. And out of two of those, I remember two of them, wouldn't I? To encourage your brothers and sisters and to encourage your pastor. Because I know that it says, and, and I'll just tell you, it says there, and this is one of the reasons I chose that. It says, sometimes when attendance is low, the pastor will start to question himself. Amen. You know, the new monkeys become the old monkey. We're not going to the zoo anymore. And so we'll just stay away. Well, maybe... The zoo needs a new monkey. That's the kind of questioning that takes place sometimes. And we have to state this plainly. 
because he says, as the manner of some is, as the habit of some is, to just lay out of church, to just not come. So here's what the tragedy is that church attendance comes down to what is your habit. It should never just be a habit because a habit is something you do unconsciously. I found this morning in class, I kept doing that. I don't know how if anybody was counting. We used to have, you know, in uh, school, we used to have teachers that had little ticks and we'd count the numbers. <laughs> we didn't listen to the class or the teacher. We just counted the ticks the teacher had and we'd compare notes afterwards. That's all a habit is. Some of you, you don't have to think about it, you just do it. Well, it shouldn't be a habit, but it should be our habit to regularly attend church. I believe there are people who actually love the Lord, who actually love coming to church, but they've gotten out of the habit. Because they've gotten out of the habit, they've just quit coming. And what was once the normal routine has fallen by the wayside and is forsaken. Well, let's wrap this up. Let me remind you, first of all, why we come together on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. First, it is to praise God. We enter His gates with thanksgiving. We enter His courts with praise. And next, we come to be an encouragement to each other. Remember those. I hear it all the time. I don't believe you have to go to church to worship God. I believe you can worship God anywhere. In, a, in some sense, that may be true. And we have folks that watch church on live stream. Maybe you can learn the Word of God that way. But here's something you cannot do by way of live stream. You cannot be here to get the encouragement of your brothers and sisters in Christ or to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. We have live stream as a convenience for our members who cannot, physically are not able to be here. It is not intended, I'll say it again, it is not intended to replace your presence in these services if you're physically able. So we're charged to stimulate our brother and sister to love and good works. And here's the $64,000 question. How do you expect to do that at home on the couch? We should live as close to God as we can. We need to draw near. Don't be ashamed of our relationship. Hold on to our profession and hope. Meet together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Encourage one another. Provoke one another to love and good works. And he even gives us a motive. And so much the more, thought I'd forgotten that, didn't you? And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of Christ's return. The closer we get to the coming of Christ, the more we need to be meeting together and encouraging one another, lifting one another up, praying for one another. It's good to look out and see that there are people that believe like I do, that trust the Lord like I do. And the closer we get to the, the Lord's return, the more we need that. And the closer we get to the Lord's return, we ought to be doing it. Now that was the instruction given 2,000 years ago. Okay? And if it was needed 2,000 years ago, how much more is it needed today? Do you think we need the encouragement of other believers Here's what's sad in light of that final phrase and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's some saved folks who, I believe, view the coming of Christ almost like it's a fairy tale. Oh, the Bible talks about it, but you know. Or, yeah, Jesus is coming back, but it won't be in my lifetime. And both of those ideas are wrong. 
Jesus is coming back. It could be today. And we need to be ready and we need to be assembling and encouraging one another.